Let us pray. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Remember that song, We Are the World? Remember that song? You know, if you were alive in 1985, which I think most of you were, it would have been really hard to miss. It was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie uh, to raise money for starving people in Ethiopia during a great famine in the mid-1980s. When they recorded the song, they invited just about every rock star you can think of to join them. And so if you go to YouTube and watch the video, it's just a who's who of late 20th century pop music. You know, there's Stevie Wonder and Kenny Rogers, Diana Ross, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, the Pointer Sisters, Willie Nelson, and on and on and on. The record went on to sell a 20 million copies. It's still the eighth best-selling single of all time and raised $63 million in 1985, the equivalent of about $150 million in today's money for food and medical aid in Africa. And the idea behind We Are the World was really a beautiful one. You know, people from all different backgrounds coming together for something larger than themselves, united in the battle against suffering. The song begins, there comes a time when we heed a certain call, when the world must come together as one. It's a song about unity. And we love the idea of unity, don't we? It's a beautiful concept. We live, of course, in the United States of America. And the motto of our country, adopted by Congress in 1782, is e pluribus unum, out of many, one. Unity seems baked into our identity as Americans, and that, that identity, that idea of coming together really has spread to the wider world that now we have the United Nations. You know, I know some of you probably have mixed feelings about that, but it is a thing, the United Nations, and in a few days, the, the Olympics will begin. I don't know if the Parade of Nations is going to happen or not this year. We'll see. But when it does happen, it's this amazing moment where the whole world sort of sets aside their differences and comes together in the pursuit of athletic glory. Unity is also a deeply biblical and Christian idea. Psalm 133 begins with these famous words, how very good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It's like precious oil on the head running down upon the beard. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion for there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. Now I don't have a beard, so I'll have to defer to DJ as to what it feels like to have oil running down the beard. But it's clear from this Psalm that Unity is a precious and beautiful thing in God's sight. Or think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified. What is his prayer for his disciples? He says, I pray that they may all be one. I and them, you and me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
He's praying for unity among the disciples and unity between the disciples and the God they worship. And when we read the book of Acts, the story of the early church, it seems, at least for a moment, as though that prayer has been answered. We're told in Acts chapter 4 that the, the whole group of those who believed all the Christians were of one heart and soul. No one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. Unity is a beautiful thing when it happens, a beautiful idea, a biblical Christian idea. So why is it then that we so often find ourselves divided, that we seem to love to be at odds with one another, that we relish finding things to fight about? Do I even need to give you examples of this? Gator versus Seminole? <laughs> Marvel versus DC? Boomer versus Millennial? You know, I have two teenage sons who anytime my wife and I say anything vaguely old fogeyish, they'll be like, okay, Boomer. We'll be like, you know, we're not Boomers. We're like Gen X, maybe Gen X, Millennial, Xennial. We are not Boomers, to which they respond, okay, Boomer. <laughs> now, those are all pretty trivial examples, of course. There was an interview with a member of Congress in last week's New York Times Magazine, and he said that in his opinion, we are so divided as a nation right now that if California suddenly got nuked, some Republicans would think to themselves, at least now we can win the White House. This is a Republican speaking. He's a Republican congressman. And of course, he said if Texas got nuked, some Democrats would think the very same thing. Now, hopefully that's just hyperbole. But the truth is that we are a divided nation. Of course, we're also religiously divided. Do you know that there are over 220 different Christian denominations in America and over 45,000 denominations globally? I found that number hard to believe, so I had to look it up. Many different sources, 45,000 different denominations. Again, we love the idea of unity in theory, but in practice, we seem to love division much, much more. Why is that? Well, perhaps there are some small good things about our divisiveness. Perhaps they flow from a, a desire for truth, a desire for justice, or a, for orthodoxy, or orthopraxy, for correct believing or living. But my hunch is that our propensity for division is mainly sinful. It's mainly a product of our sin, mainly about justifying our own existence, about comparing ourselves to others in a way that always casts us in the best possible light. It's mainly about looking for reasons to judge others, to look down on them, or about claiming some small righteousness for ourselves, some small specialness by differentiating ourselves from other less enlightened or capable people than ourselves. I want to read you a small section of this book. It's called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Anyone ever read this? The Screwtape Letters? A few people. It's fictional. It's a wonderful little book. It's a, a series of correspondences between an older, more experienced demon and his younger demon apprentice. 
And this young demon has been assigned to tempt and torment one particular man whom they call the patient. And this man, the patient, is in the midst of becoming a Christian. And so these two demons are doing all they can to prevent that from happening, or at the very least, to stunt this man's spiritual growth. So uh, this is written in 1950. You know, C.S. Lewis was a uh, Cambridge professor, so I'll, I'll explain it. But, but listen to these words of C.S. Lewis as um, it's one demon writing to another about tempting a man. Here's what he says. If the patient can be induced to live, as I have known many humans live for quite long periods, two parallel lives, he will not only appear to be, but actually be a different man in each of the circles he frequents. So in every social situation, he'll be a little bit different. Failing this, there is a subtler and more entertaining method to kind of break this man down. He can be made to take a positive pleasure in the perception that the two sides of his life are inconsistent. This is done by exploiting his vanity. He can be taught to enjoy kneeling on Sunday just because he remembers that the people he kneels next to could not possibly understand the urbane and mocking world which he inhabited on Saturday evening. Right? The people kneeling on Sunday morning could never understand the amazing social life he had on Saturday night. And on the other hand, he can also enjoy the body and blasphemy over the coffee with these admirable friends all the more on Saturday night because he is aware of a deeper spiritual world within himself that they cannot understand. You see the idea. The worldly friends he has touch him on one side and the Christian friends on the other. And he is the complete, balanced, complex man who seems round them all. Thus, while being permanently treacherous to at least two sets of people, he will feel, instead of shame, a continual undercurrent of self-satisfaction. Now, I'm sure that none of you have ever felt that way. But when I read that passage, it just skewered me. I think I was in my mid-20s, late-20s. I went to church, you know, somewhat regularly, but I remember having the thought when I would go to church, well, it's so good that I'm here and being kind of holy, but these people can never be as worldly as I am the rest of the week. And then the rest of the week, as I was hanging out with my wonderful worldly friends, having a grand old time, I'd say, this is great, but, you know, these people clearly aren't as spiritual and holy as, and Christian as I am, right? So I got it both ways. I got to judge everyone around me all the time. And the point that Lewis makes here is that not only are we divided among ourselves, we're divided within ourselves, right? We often become two or three or four different people divided in our heart and mind, divvying up the world, divvying up ourselves into little categories for the sake of our own ego and glorification. Well, in today's passage from Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a divided church. I'm sorry to say that the unified utopian church described in the book of Acts lasted for about 15 minutes, and then Paul went on to spend most of his ministry writing to, again, divided and fighting churches. I know that's hard to believe, right? Christians not getting along. Can you imagine? In Ephesus, the church to which he was writing, as in many places, the division was between Christians who were ethnically Jewish and ethnic, ethnically Gentile. 
Christians who are divided along racial and cultural lines, each feeling that they themselves are superior to the other. And what Paul does in today's passage is remind them of two great truths. The first truth is that the only division that matters is the one between humanity, between us and God. The division, the chasm, created by our sin, our rebellion, our self-righteousness, our disobedience. Listen to what he writes to those Ephesians. Remember that you were at one time without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Remember, Paul says, that for all of your supposed righteousness, all your supposed rightness, all the ways in which you divide yourselves from others, all the ways you judge them and look down on them, you were once divided from God. You were aliens, strangers, hopeless, godless. So bring it down a notch. Show a little humility. Show a little self-awareness. The only division that really matters, Paul says, is not the one between you and other people, but between you and God. And in contrast to all the petty little ways that you judge one another, God judges you in righteousness and truth. You may be divided, but you are unified in your sin, unified under God's judgment. That's the first thing Paul says. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, putting to death the hostility through it. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In this passage, Paul says that even though you separated yourself from God, Jesus has brought you back again. He has brought you near. Jesus has reconciled us with God and with each other. Paul says that on the cross, Jesus was divided. Jesus was broken so that we might be unified and healed. Unified with God and unified with each other. Now this unity doesn't come because we're gonna agree on everything. That will never happen. <laughs> But this unity comes about because we all trust in the same person. We trust in the same God to save us in the midst of our broken humanity. 
We are unified in our sin and need, but we are also unified in our belovedness, unified in our salvation, unified in the love that God has for broken sinners like you and me and Paul and the Ephesians. We'll never be unified in our own righteousness, our own correctness, our own opinions, but we are unified in Jesus's righteousness for us, in Jesus's opinion about us. We are unified in our citizenship in God's kingdom. That's a unity that can never be taken away. God has made peace with us through Jesus in the hope that we might be at peace with one another. Well, that song I mentioned in the beginning, We Are the World, which I hope just runs through your mind all day long now. I hope it just really, we are the world, over and over again, right? You could not get it out of your mind. There are a few things about it that are not entirely compatible with Christianity. It's a, it's a bit too optimistic about human nature. But there is one thing, I think, which resonates with Paul's letter. The chorus begins, we are the world, we are the children. And that's true. By the blood of Jesus, we have been made children of God, members of God's household, united by his love, by his sacrifice, by his grace and forgiveness. We may be divided in our humanity, even divided within ourselves, but we are unified in hope and faith. We are unified in Jesus. Amen.